Welcome to the Live Your Dance podcast. My name is Molly King, and I'm a former corporate working girl turned author, dancer, and coach. Each week, we come together to celebrate someone who has found their metaphorical dance and listen to their insights in order to inspire you to find and live your dance. Thanks again for tuning in and joining me today. Now, let's dance. beautiful people. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode number 19. Is it possible to love the life you have? Acknowledging and accepting the conditions of your life exactly as they are and drop the struggle to make you and your life different. Today's guest, Roger Husden, sent me a sneak preview of his book called Dropping the Struggle, Seven Ways to Love the Life You Have, which actually came out the day we recorded this. I was so touched by his work, and it resonated with me on many different levels and in various areas of my life that I thought it'd be an honor to have him come on the show and talk more about it. Roger wrote Dropping the Struggle from firsthand experience as someone who, up until just a few years ago actually, spent much of his time in what he calls a covert struggle with life. Like many of us, he struggled with the past, the future, relationships, his desire to improve himself, and his own mortality. His inner struggle continued until he got to know himself at a deep level, enough so that he was able to see that he was the one making his life needlessly difficult, and he made a conscious choice to let go. What I love is that he shares lessons from his own experiences as he offers readers seven ways to love the life they have by dropping the struggle to be special, Dropping the struggle for a perfect life, dropping the struggle for meaning, dropping the struggle for love, the struggle with time, the struggle for change, and the struggle to know. And in our interview here together, Roger and I talk about the difference between effort and struggle, how it is that our struggles all tie back to our sense of identity, and how we can use that intel to then shape our life choices, including our career choices, our relationships, etc., And he even told me about the time that he was captured and interrogated for two days in Tehran and no one knew where he was and how that experience had a major impact on him and shifted his view of life entirely. Roger brings so much clear wisdom to the show and I'm so honored to dive into his story together. Let's listen in. here today with Roger Housden, the author of Dropping the Struggle, and he's also the author of several other books, including the 10 Poem series, and he's been featured on Huffington Post, on Oprah, in several publications, and I'm so grateful to have him here with me today. So thank you, Roger, for joining us on Live Your Dance. Great pleasure, great pleasure, Molly. Well, I have been reading your book, and like I mentioned, I'm absolutely loving it. To me, it feels like I'm reading a meditation as I go through, and it's it's kind of loosening up all these rigid bits of me, and I know a lot of people would really benefit from reading this book. It's called Dropping the Struggle, and it looks like you go through several different areas of your life or of life in general and kind of start to break them down into a a different perspective. And what would you say was your purpose in writing this book? 
Well, I tend to write books that are expressions of life as I'm experiencing life now at the moment. And over the last year or two, you know, I, or two or three really, I've really come to have a, I've come to feel that there's a different relationship has been developing in my life toward certain basic existential themes. Um, and I want to say straight off that um, there's nothing wrong with struggle in places where struggle is needed and where you can get the result you want. After all, most of us struggle to come out of the womb. Yeah. Struggle is, struggle is a natural part of life. There's not a single person in life who has not struggled or who is not struggling in some way now, however subtly. So um, in, in the title of the book, Dropping the Struggle, I'm not suggesting that you give up on life. Basically, lie back and get rolled over, you know. Uh, no, that's not the point at all. We do need struggle in certain areas of our life. I mean, you're not going to get through college without a certain degree of struggle. Right. You know, Roger Federer didn't become a great tennis player without any kind of struggle. So, of course, you know, there's a place for it. But there, I think that the areas of our life that really matter most to us are precisely those areas of life where struggle never works. Mm. And for example, the struggle for love. Yes. Trying to get the love you want. The struggle for meaning. Trying to kind of squeeze some kind of meaning and sense of purpose from your life, right? Right. Uh, you know, the struggle to have the perfect life. <laughs> have every, have all your ducks in a row. Yes, get the right, right job. All those things. I, yeah, the right job, the right career, you know, the right relationship, the right house to live in, the right dishware, di dishes on the table, the right tablecloth, everything, you know. So uh, I think we get that that causes more suffering than it does joy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So struggle really in these areas, which I'm calling existential because they're part of being uh, human really they come with a package of being human um, and we're here in some way to enter into a deep relationship with these questions and I've discovered which is not a new discovery that struggle is not the way I think you're so right well and I think the struggle that has an undertone of fear or ego of preservation of pride or significance is what tends to lead us down the wrong path, especially when it comes to love or career or looking the right way, having the right life. Is that how you would define struggle in this instance? Yeah, because struggle is not actually the same as effort. Okay. You know, because we do need to make effort. I mean, anyone in a relationship knows that you need to make a certain effort. Right. 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 Because if not, it's not going to last very long. No. So there is a there is a work involved in relationship or in love. There's a work involved in, in meaning and, and in purpose. Um, but I would distinguish effort from struggle in this way. I would say that struggle is an extra push born out of survival anxiety, actually. 
Now, by survival, I don't necessarily mean that, you know, the survival of your body, that you're going to die, but of your identity. Right. You know, your the struggle is to keep a fa keep your face, you know, um, right. to struggle to maintain a kind of picture that you have of yourself. That's what I mean by identity and the struggle to maintain the identity. And that's born of fear, really. It's born of God, who will I be if I don't have this 200,000 uh, a year job? Who right. will I be? You know, who will I be, you know, if I don't have a house with, you know, a beautiful pool, you know? Um, and effort, you know, is a natural intent towards a given end. I mentioned already Roger Federer, you know, it could be anyone, any of those Olympic athletes that we recently saw, you know, huge amount of effort goes into their achievement, right? So, of course, effort's vital. But I think anyone who's involved in some tasks such as that, whether it be physical or mental, realizes that the more you struggle, the more you get in your own way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I don't know if you've read actually, speaking of tennis, there's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Which yeah, I, I, great book. Yeah, I love the distinction he makes, which, and you're saying just in different terms, but he talks about self one and self two, and self one being, I think it's this way, but self one being when you're really in your head and you can hear that monologue of trying trying to try or, you know, make that very concerted intellectual effort. Um, and you talk a little bit about the prefrontal cortex, like coming from that area versus the self too that takes over, that's instinctual, that, that side of you that learns how to walk as a baby without being explained, this is how you walk. But that each of us have those two different sides of our, our processing power. I'm so glad you uh, reminded me of that book. I haven't read that book. I read that book 30 years ago. It's a great so, one. Yeah, I just reread it too. Before you were born, I don't know. But, <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, it's still in print, but it's a great oh, yeah. book. And I remember now that you, you're right. He speaks of self one and self two in the same way that a much more recent book uh, by Thomas Kahneman, K-A-H-N-E-M-A-N-N, which is, I think, in the in, was in the bestseller list about a year or two ago, uh, talks about um, thinking, um, the thinking, thinking one and thinking two. Oh. And that the thinking one, again, is precisely that conscious self uh, that has plans and tries to execute them, whereas thinking two, you know, has this instinctual uh, instinctual knowing, which is which is different to uh, a kind of conceptual knowing. And I really uh, appreciate what you also just said about that self too in the inner game of tennis, where where the flow takes over. It's essentially the flow if you are allowing. Now, this is this is the key, the, the dropping the struggle to try and get that shot perfect over the net something in you actually already knows. And you mentioned the toddler who learns how to walk in a natural way. Right. Why? Because in some way or another, and it's a mystery, the embryo, you know, ha has the whole design program already built in unconsciously. Right. 
and it just has to unfold. So we're talking about ourselves. You know, we as individuals need to give ourselves the time and the space to unfold and to see where we go naturally without our trying to force ourselves this way or that way. What is it that we just do naturally? Because there is a clue to our life. The kind of things that we do without thinking about them, the kind of things that give us pleasure without thinking about them, those are the clues, right? They're built into our DNA in the same way that walking is. But we forget that and we think we have to devise a plan about how to make our life meaningful. And I believe that our life already has an inbuilt design of meaning that is waiting for us to discover it. I love that. And there's a great passage in your book, and I actually highlighted it, so I'm grateful I can refer to it. You talk about how if we focus only on results, we'll be devastated. That if we already know, you talk about a cup and how, I forget who it was, but knowing that the cup is going to be broken at some point in its lifetime, if we already know that that will happen, we we can give our best to this process. We can create whatever we can and then trust the larger process of life itself. And that shift from holding on to letting go, you talk about, how does that relate specifically since my audience is is pretty career-focused? How would you say that relates to the job path the navig like navigating the career path and what job should I have and do you just let it go do you do you follow your strengths or or what would you say in in that specific context right it's a good question thank you so again I'd refer to the difference between struggle and effort you know we absolutely of course need to if we begin to read the signs of our own life then we have to act on the signs of our own life. So by signs of our own life, I mean our our natural tendencies and pleasures, that which really nourishes and feeds us. We may be absolutely fascinated by algorithms. If we are, then that's a clue to a certain kind of, of, of work. Or we may be absolutely in love with horses. Mm-hmm. And just always, you know, from a child, really have just loved stroking horses, talking to horses, reading books about horses. You know, well, there's a clue there because we didn't think that pleasure up. It was just there naturally, right? And so having begun to notice these things that we already love to do, then the stage comes of, well, where can I begin to move into a, a, a form of work that in some way draws on my pleasures and loves, right? right. So that requires effort. Right? You have to look, you have to research, you have to apply for jobs, etc., etc. So the effort is needed, but the effort is based on a real foundation. It's not based on fear. It's based on you know, your own natural, unique identity. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's a great guiding post. And even as we're, as we're heading into this newer age of technology where there are new jobs created, just given that there are technologies we've never dealt with, I think the key part to what you said, you know, is finding the principle of these things that you love. And if it's algorithms or if it's solving puzzles, that can be taken to any to so many different applications. It's not, 
you know, a narrow pathway, but look for the principle, not necessarily the literal application per se, yes. but I think that that would help as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, also the willingness to trust in your own natural gifts, that is, and whatever they may be, or your own natural interests and pleasures, and trust that if you invest your energy in them, they will give you a return naturally. Now, you may not know the way in which the return comes, you'll find out, right? right. But if you are connected in some way to, to your own natural inclinations, uh, a way will be found. I love that. I love that. And I think from my own personal life, a quick example has been, I've seen it both in dancing and in skiing this last season. It's, it's almost as though I see someone doing a very expert level of dance or of skiing, and I know my body can do that. But the fact is getting my mind to realize that I can do that as well. And the time I spend practicing these skills is not necessarily learning the skill, it's, it's somewhat dropping the idea that I don't already know how to do this. Does that yes, make sense? Yes, that's great. That's great. Well, yeah, what is, it's actually dropping into the skill you already have and letting the skill do it and not you try and do it. Yeah, and when I get in my head and I try, oh yeah, it's awful. It. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, you'll break a leg. Uh, yeah, and I almost have. <laughs> yeah, that reminded me of that. Well, switching topics, there's there's a story I would love for you to tell. You talk about if we're lucky, <laughs> the time will come when life will turn us upside down and all our precious coins will fall out of our pockets. And so basically, those times when it it's not, it doesn't rain, it pours, and, and a lot of bad things seem to happen at once, whether it's with careers or relationships or financials or whatnot. And you basically say that you've, your house of cards suddenly falls to the ground and you recognize the shimmering silence that you are and always were. And I was wondering if maybe your time in Iran, if that would be a story you wouldn't mind telling with that moment that you had on the balcony. Sure, yes. Just to, to summarize what you've just said about the, I mean, it doesn't sound great, you know, being yeah. turned upside down <laughs> and having all the coins in your pocket fall out. I mean, who needs it, right? <laughs> well, and why would you be lucky if that ever happened? Right, it's an interesting wording there. Yeah, why? Well, you know, it reminds me of a couple of lines from a Rumi poem. Be helpless dumbfounded, unable to say yes or no, then a stretcher will come from grace to gather you up. Hmm. So, you know, when, it, or it's like Dante in the Divine Comedy, where which starts out, you know, with Dante being in a dark wood. Right. And he says, you know, in the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark wood the right way wholly lost. Hmm. In the middle of my life, so it's a midlife crisis. Okay. In the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark wood, the right way wholly lost. Okay, so <laughs> you might say, well, God, what a terrible situation to be in. And it is. You know, we are undone, you know. But 
what is undone? What is undone in a situation like Dante's <clears throat> or like mine in Iran, which I'll come to, what is undone is the whole idea of who we think we are. When that is undone, actually something, a deeper sense of being can emerge. Mm. Right? Yeah. That was there all along, you know, the deeper, truer Molly or Roger, who's there all along, but has this normally, you know, is wearing this suit of clothes to go about in everyday society. Okay, so I went to Iran four, five years ago because I was writing, I was researching a book on the Iranian culture. I wanted to, this was the time when uh, George Bush and others were speaking of Iran as the axis of evil. Right. And what I knew about Iranian culture was very different to that uh, description. Uh, I'd always thought of Iran as being a deeply, deeply cultured, spiritual place, really. And I wanted to go and find out for myself and to write about uh, what I found. So I did that. I went there. I was there for several weeks. And on my way out of the country at the airport, something happened. <laughs> and so I was stopped by members of the uh, Iranian intelligence service and they took me back to Tehran and they interrogated me for two days under the suspicion of being a spy. So it really looked for a while as if I'd never see home again. And now, you know, as an educated white male, I had gone through life with a certain degree of entitlement, unconsciously exuding an air that seemed to imply that I had some kind of special pass. Right? Mm. Things like this didn't happen to people like me. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> now, you know, that was maybe partly personal, but it was also, it's also part of my collective inheritance because, you know, English men have strutted the globe for centuries feeling special. Over the last 50 years, American men have tended to do the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, not now so much, but they have done. Right. So even though any justification for feeling special, you know, had long since disintegrated, it was never actually justified in the first place. But, you know, the whole feeling is passed down the generations. So it's a core cultural belief. And those change only slowly. So I can be as full of myself as anyone. Throughout my time in Iran, it had felt as if the gods were smiling on me. Until the moment I was stopped by the agents, my life had always been marked by a certain naivete that allowed me to glide through situations and countries without being harmed. It was a kind of grace, actually, that I'd never really been conscious of until it was about to be taken away. So two days of questioning, always the same questions, you know, who sent you here? You know, who are you working for? Why did you come to the airport in a diplomatic car and so on? Right. What were you doing in Kurdistan? So my interrogators were actually two burly men in baggy black suits. Wow. And they finally stopped talking. And one of them started cracking his knuckles. Oh, jeez. And the other held up my English passport. And he said, you see this? This is worthless. Oh, jeez. Do you realize... 
you could disappear today and no one would ever know. And then he threw my passport into the waste paper basket. Oh, geez. So much for my English special pass. <laughs> I guess so. All oh, right, right. So then he said, have you ever heard of Avine Prison? Oh. Yes, I had heard of Avine Prison. I did not like what I heard. So the man who threw my passport away glared at me and said, you're very fortunate. He's the boss and he's actually this time going to give you a choice. You can either go to Avian prison for five years or you can work for us. <laughs> well, think about it. Which which one would you have chosen? Well, I tell you what I chose. I said <laughs> I'm delighted to work for them. <laughs> Probably right. a good choice. So. I had to stand by the boss and they took my photograph with him and they said, you know, if I went back on my word, they caused trouble with the CIA, right? Wow. And then they said, we're leaving the room, we'll be back in five minutes. So they left the room and it was, it was midnight, you know, I was overlooking the whole of Tehran, all the lights below. And I realized, you know, I was standing there looking down at Tehran, it was the, my life was at a turning point. I mean, there was no way out of this. Right. I'd always, I'd always assumed no harm could come, right? But there in Iran, I was no different from all the journalists who were already in Avian prison, from the Berkeley students who'd been caught straying over the Iraqi-Iranian border, you know. I realized in that moment that everything, but everything, could be taken away from me at any moment. Really. Yeah, yeah. And whatever feeling of specialness I had and that I carried around with me for years fell away in that room. Wow. I was helpless. I was helpless. But then, you know, I felt a kind of give it something gave up in me. Hmm. Something gave up the struggle with the truth of my situation. Interesting. The truth of my situation is that I was totally helpless. Could I acknowledge that? I mean, maybe. Maybe this was it for my life, you know. Hmm. My whole story about who I thought I was, maybe that's gone, right? Right. But then, you know, I started to realize, and this is the point, I started to realize that the whole narrative of Roger the writer living in San Francisco and all of that and his friends and everything, that was a fabrication spun out of my neurons. Hmm. Roger is a narrative. It's a useful narrative. It's, you know, it serves a purpose, of course, Yeah. but it is a narrative and it's a provisional reality. So in that moment, in that room, the familiar story of my life meant nothing. Yeah, they didn't care. <laughs> nobody cared. Nobody knew. I mean, what did it matter whether I was a writer or a garbage cleaner? Yeah. It's irrelevant. What did it matter who I was married to or not married to? I mean, I was there completely alone. Nobody knew where I was. But what happened was somehow the absence of my well-worn identity, Roger, it's, it's as if it fell off like a tight suit of clothes. And I felt this incredible freedom. I mean, the Iranians had seen through my game, right? I was nobody special, nobody different, not different to anybody else. But, and I was naked, not knowing anything about my life from here on out. I yeah. had no idea what was going to happen. And yet, 
something essential continued to palpitate. Something essential was throbbing beneath my skin. I was alive. Whatever was happening, whatever would happen, I realized in that moment, I am. Hmm. I am. Not the Roger narrative. That's a provisional thing which could change at any moment. But underneath that, oh my God, <laughs> I am. I am what? Well, nothing to speak of. Not really. Just the silence of clear air. And it, it was just the greatest sense of freedom I'd ever known. The freedom from my own story. Yeah, the deeper essence of Roger that's bigger than any of this experience. So that's what I meant by turning one, you know, it's actually fortunate sometimes to be turned upside down and have all the coins of your pocket uh, in your pocket falling out because it can or may return you to something far bigger. Yes, and more eternal. Than who you thought you were. Absolutely. Do you think everyone at some point in their life will face a moment like that? No. So... A lot of people do, but not everybody. And also, it's not the same for everybody. It doesn't necessarily come out like that. No, definitely not. No, I mean, think about you. You would not wish suffering on anyone. You know, it's not that, oh, yeah, we have to... We have to have our identity taken away and then we'll enter some big, wonderful spiritual reality. Yeah. No. Okay, would you say that to a Syrian refugee? No. Probably not, no. <laughs> no. I mean, who would wish that on, on anybody, you know? It's the most terrible, the terrible things that are happening in our world right now, as they always have done, by the way. Yeah. As they always have done. We live in a world of savage beauty. That's the world we live in. It's a beautiful world, but my God, it'll eat you to tooth and claw as well. Yeah. We don't want to get into the kind of new agey perspective, you know, of everything's there for a reason and it's it's all for your, your good in the end and everything. Yeah. It sucks very often. <laughs> uh, yep, it's very true. It's very true. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes... And for some people, there can be life-changing situations, you know, which wake one up to a different sense of who one is. And, you know, people experience this with illness, with cancer. Yep. It's the worst thing that could happen to you. I mean, your life is going to be taken away. And yet, you know, we've all read stories or at least heard of stories where for some people, it's they, they say they're actually grateful for it, that it's the, it's the biggest thing that happened in their life because it woke them up to what is essential in life. And what is essential? Love. Mm. And I think you mean something bigger than just personal love, right? All of it. Yeah. So what is bigger than my wanting a new car? What is bigger than wishing I were not alone? Which is a genuine wish. Yeah. But what is bigger? What is bigger than that? And if you have something like a life-threatening illness, your mind is focused pretty quickly on the essential. Definitely. I've faced, not that personally, but my mom passed on from, from some form of cancer. And within that year, I lost about six or seven other family members um, well, and friends. And it just distilled down, for me at least, I mean, it caused a lot of questioning, to be honest. Of course. Good. 
And, and yeah, I am, I mean, not that I can bring anyone back, but I wouldn't change it because, I mean, I can't change it. So it's some of those moments that, you know, if you have a choice, you look at, all right, how can I use this? If, if this can be used for greater good, how, how could it play that role? And I, I love the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, because I think he, he, does that to the nth degree um, after surviving several death camps in Germany during World War II. I just, I think his perspective and, and what you're talking about a lot in your book too, and that's why I think I resonated with it, was was just understanding that moment like when when it seems like the world is turning you upside down and shaking everything out, there's still something there at the end of the day. When everything, and that's what what Victor talks about, when they take his manuscript, his family from him, his clothes, they brand him, they shave his head, they give him the uniform and try to take away every external form of identification, he realized that he was still there. And he had that similar moment that you did. And he said, they can never take the freedom of my thought, I think was kind of how he put it. And I think that's ultimately all we really have even though we're tricked into thinking we have control over so many things and that creates who we are. But at the end of our lives, you know, that idea of not being able to take anything with you when you die, all you have is, is what you've given, is what you've become as the essence of who you are, I believe. That just got really deep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I agree. Yeah, no, that's the... <laughs> a lovely... yeah no, absolutely. That's a... I'm really glad you brought Viktor Frankl in, you know, like that. I would say also, and this is not to contradict him when you said, you know, that he, no one can take his thoughts away from him. I think you said. Yeah. I would say also that no one can take the silence that is at the root of our being away from us. Can you dive into that a little more? I think what that... I believe that there is, just as I was describing there in Iran, there's a dimension of our existence that is untouched by anything, that is a shimmering, alive silence, aware of itself. I encapsulated that in the words, I am. Okay. And I like the way you just expounded on that too. I think that's a good way to put it. Can we talk a little bit about you, Roger, in terms of along your path, you said, <laughs> I think you said it in your book or on the back cover that you've had this covert struggle with life for a long time. And not that any of us are perfect, but, you know, along your path, you've had a career as well and, and you've written lots of books. But would you say that at this point, the philosophy that you have about work is different than you had perhaps at the beginning of your career path? Yeah, I would. Well, well, I hesitate to, to say yes or no to that because okay. it's, it, it's, a, it's a come to appear in a, or shift in a certain way. But I think quite honestly, it's always at root, there's been a, something that has always been there in my attitude towards work. But I think the thing that I've always in my life, or mostly in my life, until I, I guess um, a few years ago, really associated work with meaning. Okay. So work, that is, whatever it is I'm doing or producing, is my way of 
has been my way of finding meaning or looking for meaning. Right. Uh, you know, we feel we're doing meaningful work or something, and so therefore we feel meaningful. Right, right. right. Underlying that, for me, really, I guess I've always been a, a bit of a philosopher. So it's always been for me that the underlying question of my life has been driven by a sense of a sense of lack, actually. And what I like, can I read something from the book? Absolutely, uh, please do. I, what I what I did. This is in the chapter "Dropping the Struggle for Meaning and Purpose." You know, I, I, I give writing, I run writing courses online okay. uh, and also live in, in San Francisco. Um, and in one of my courses uh, recently, or a year or two ago, I asked my students to write their obituary. Oh, yes. I just read this part in your book. And so an obituary that you write yourself is not the same as something that you see in the New York Times. Um, in the New York Times, an obituary is full of people's achievements. Right. But if you write it yourself, what I'm asking people to do is to really write their interior reality onto the page. What was it really like to live inside Roger's skin? Hmm. I love that question. So I wrote my own obituary and I put it into this chapter. So his first book was called Fire in the Heart, and whether he knew it or not, it was that fire that was the guiding motif of his life. A fire that burned lightly inside his chest, a passionate loving of living, that when he was joined to it, joined him to the world and all that is in it, but joined to it, he was sometimes not. And for much of his life, that fire raised smoke in the form of a search for meaning and purpose. A search that was never satisfied by the conventional avenues to fulfillment and that led him on a lifelong quest for answers in the world's spiritual traditions. So for many years, he had a classic case of seeker's disease. The Holy Grail was always somewhere else. And the illness caused him and those around him considerable angst, especially in his earlier years. And he was so often absorbed in his own wonderings and dreamings that he could often be absent while present with his son and his first wife. He'd sporadically feel a dizzying dark hole in his center that at times would render him helpless, unable to know what to do next. He would feel lacking in something he had no name for. He associated it with a lack of meaningful activity. Surely I should or could be doing something more, contributing more. How best can I live this life? These questions were his frequent companions and they rarely came paired with answers, but he knew that the source of his lack was deeper than any external cause. For years then, nothing was ever quite enough. No one was ever quite enough. He himself was especially not enough <laughs> because he felt he was not living the fullness of life, although he had no idea what that meant. Yet as he began to stop fleeing from it 
as he began to allow without resistance the gnawing in the pit of his stomach that no meal could satisfy. It slowly revealed itself to be the fertile ground he'd always been looking for without knowing it. It was as if he'd been looking up at the sky, the night sky, and instead of being enchanted by the stars, he had finally gazed into the fathomless dark out of which they and everything had come. Gradually, the more he relaxed into the stillness beyond all outer roles and identities, into the stillness of the presence of being, the empty void became a fruitful void, a loving, aware presence that was to become the most intimate and wordless sense of meaning he'd ever known. Toward the end of his life, he came to appreciate the gifts and the beauty of ordinary human existence and found his deepest meaning and most luminous moments there. He left behind the longing for the extraordinary, the exceptional, the dramatic experiences that had taken him all through the Sahara, all over India and the Middle East, and he was nourished instead by deep and loving friendships, the daily blessings of nature, most of all by the stillness of being. His books were all celebrations of the beauty, the fallibility and the poignancy of human existence as known through his own existence. And celebrations too of the ever presence of grace and mystery in the midst of life's ignorance and suffering. One of his later books was called Dropping the Struggle. Loving the life he'd been given was what he was finally doing. <laughs> that is really beautifully written and just an amazing sentiment to come to assuming that would be your obituary. Well, how do you feel as you as you wrote that? What's what's the overlying emotion that you think or that gratitude. you had? Gratitude. Okay. Gratitude. Gratitude for the life I have. Gratitude for the breath that I'm breathing. Gratitude for this moment speaking with you. I love that, and, and it reminds me a little bit of, I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem about success. And at the end, he just says, to know that one life has breathed easier because I was here, that's Ooh. success. Beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, the whole thing is great, but that's the part that I remember. <laughs> but I think you definitely are doing that for a lot of people. So I acknowledge you for that, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have you here with us. Gosh, I feel like we could talk for a long time because I want to ask you about every chapter and all these different things, but I think we've done a good job here wrapping it up, and maybe there will be more episodes in the future. Well, I would love to ask you a little bit about just where do you find inspiration these days? Well, as, as most people do, I find inspiration in nature, in walking. I also find inspiration in um, the deep intimacy that I share and feel with the 
people I call friends, you know, in this where I live, which uh, is a very wonderful community of people. And uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And that's a constant inspiration, as is my uh, intimate relationship. I bet. And something I've learned, a quick tangent, but as I was, I used to be in the corporate sphere for several years and noticed that the harder I worked, the less I connected with people outside of the office. And I let a lot of my close friendships kind of atrophy along with my family relationships. And I had no intimate relationship to speak of because my work was the thing that I spent the most time with. So that was my intimate relationship. But I think it's really galvanizing in one respect to see you in this stage of life and realize how important friendships are. And that, you know, the young go-getters and the, you know, it's so easy to kind of cast those aside thinking that the importance is the achievement. And I think I had that moment too when I realized, like, even if I go really far, if I get to be very successful and I want to share it with people that I've left behind, it's going to be really quiet when I go to turn to celebrate with someone and they're not there. And Mm. so that was kind of a wake up call. And I think I could still probably do a lot better than I do currently. But to hear you say that is, is very insightful and eye opening to rekindle some of those friendships that I've kind of let go to the wayside. So thank you for that idea. Yeah, because, you know, at the end of the day and at the end of your life, that's basically, that's all we have, you know. It's true. It's true. And I... That's all we have. And and you live and and we, you know, this is a very driven culture, the American culture. As you can hear, I'm not not American. Yeah. Um, Although the English are sort of halfway between America and Europe, Southern Europe. Mm-hmm. in their attitudes as well as geographically. You know, the, the Italians and the French have six, seven weeks paid holiday yeah. a year. It's inconceivable for an American to take more than two weeks, and even then they probably feel guilty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and so there, there's really something out of kilter here, and what's out of kilter is one's intimate relationship with oneself. Mm, definitely. To actually be willing to give oneself time to do nothing, because those are the creative times. I mean, most most of my books, the idea for them has not come by sitting down at a desk and trying to think what I'm going to do next. Yeah. It, it's come, they've come, the idea for a book has come almost always either by walking in the woods and suddenly something comes in sideways or between sleeping and waking. Those are, you know, the dream time, these these are the creative periods, you know, that that are absolutely vital for us uh, to live a a life of fulfillment. So giving oneself time, I think, is really very valuable thing to do. I agree. Sounds like you're doing it, though, because it sounds like uh, you're starting your own Definitely working on it. Yes. And I just published a book as well. So I know how that road goes and I'm early on the journey, but I'm so grateful to talk with you and to learn from you. And for actually for anyone who would like to get to connect with you more, where can they find you online and where can they find your books and your writing programs? Right. So uh, my website is my name, which is rogerhoosden.com. 
So R-O-G-E-R-H-O-U-S-D for David, E-N, RogerHouston.com. All my courses and uh, books and everything are on there. And Dropping the Struggle, um, which comes out today. Today! <laughs> uh, yeah, is actually available. Certainly, the easiest thing, of course, is Amazon, I'm afraid, but you can probably find it at Barnes & Noble and anywhere else. Perfect. Wonderful. And my last question that I ask every guest is, what is your definition of living your dance? What would you say is, is that thing that is the essence? Uh, I think we've been talking about living your dance all the way through the last hour. And, and, and essentially, living your dance for me means opening my arms and welcoming the life that I have moment to moment as it arises. I love that. Thank you, Roger. And thank, thank you, you so much for being on the show. And I know the listeners are going to be blessed so much for your thoughts and for the effort, not the struggle that you've put into getting them out there so that other people can be blessed by it. So thank you for all the work that you've done. I'm looking forward to finishing your book as well. Great pleasure to be with you and speak with you, Molly. Thank you. Thank you. tuning in and listening today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and got some nuggets of wisdom or new insights out of it. I'm so looking forward to bringing you some more episodes and you can help me out by liking, sharing, leaving a review and telling your friends about the show. Be sure to stay tuned to my posts on social media or sign up on my website mollyking.com for updates on the show and my upcoming book. My first book, Don't Settle, is now available in paperback on amazon.com and it's also available in ebook format on amazon or from my website my next book called live your dance will also be available soon it's a collection of wisdom and good nuggets from the show here plus some exclusive content where i'll share some of my own insights about living my dance and that will be available later this year in 2018 so lots to look forward to And thanks again for listening. I'll sign off here, but until next time, be sure to live your dance.